0: You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East, North Africa region. Hello and welcome to Middle East Analysis. Now, as you know, we have made a very big effort to make sure this is monthly, as indeed we should. And so myself and Dr. Harry Hagopian, who's wonderful tones you shall hear any second now, are uh, just squeezing this in to April, because obviously this is the last day and our last chance. I'll start by saying hello,
1: Harry. How are you? Hello, James. It's a pleasure uh, to do MEA with you again for this month. And you're absolutely uh, right. On the very last day, we're squeezing in the April version of Middle East Analysis. And thank you for your efforts as well, because I know you've been very busy too.
0: Well, you know what? I do enjoy doing this, as you know. It's definitely a labour of love for me. And I suppose I can say this, I can confess this, that I've seen you in the flesh, socially distanced, I hasten to add, for the first time this year, Harry, on uh, Tuesday of this week. So, you know, it was it. It took until nearly the end of April before I saw you in the flesh. And that's probably been the best part of a year, has it not?
1: It has been the best part of a year and it's very uncanny. One of the things that I'm realising is that we as a society, let alone as a world, but we in the UK as a society, we become so accustomed to being physically distant from others, to staying in our own places, that when we actually do find ourselves in company, in a small crowd, even though the distances are respected, it, it's, it looks a bit funny, it feels a bit funny, it's almost awkward until you get used to it and the older senses kick in.
0: Yeah, you're right. We're almost learning again how to converse and how to be with one another, which is very bizarre that that can break down in a comparatively quick period of time, actually.
1: That's quite true. And uh, imagine the number of people who've been working from home for Uh, the better part of one year, if and when they do decide to go back to their workplaces or they're asked to go back to their workplaces, it's not going to be easy. And I'm not only talking about uh, people who are doing administrative work. I'm not only talking about companies. I'm also talking about uh, universities, schools, courts of law, where a Mm. lot of it was done over this past year via Zoom and the special apps and software that uh, courts use with lawyers, all that is suddenly, hopefully going to change again. Human contact is going to be at the fore of uh, all these Uh, events, and it's going to take some doing. It's not going to be that easy. Human beings, yes, they are social animals, but like social animals, put them in a different environment and they uh, adopt different uh, proclivities.
0: Yes, and indeed, some lawyers, Texan ones that I'm thinking of, have old cat filters and look like they're talking to their judges as a cat, which was... (laughs) another one of the uh, marvelous things that can go wrong with remote um, interactions like that and of course harry you know digital diplomacy the diplomats those that rely on face-to-face contacts to make to make their points i mean everything has changed
1: absolutely and you know what i'll let you in on a on a little conversation i had with a few diplomats recently myself and we were talking about this business of digital diplomacy, and whilst a lot of them are doing it, whether on a one-on-one basis or in uh, uh, diplomatic gatherings and conferences, and a couple of them admitted to me that, yes, it's fine, we can do it, we've been trained uh, to do a lot of things, but It's not the same as two diplomats representing two viewpoints, sitting face to face and doing it in a room with a cup of coffee or a cup of tea. It's an entirely different dynamic. And I tend uh, to see the point. I've done a lot of mediation and arbitration in a previous life. And I know that it wouldn't feel the same if I were doing it by staring at the parties through a screen uh, rather than sitting with them in a room. The human contact has a lot to be uh, commended for when it comes to dissolving differences.
0: Yes, and you know, in my limited experience of of travel and and situations, experiences in the Middle East, my goodness, can people talk over one another? And that really would not work uh, over Zoom, would it?
1: No, it wouldn't. So when you're talking now with your questions, uh, James, I will very attentively and silently follow you.
0: Oh, I don't even believe that for a second. Anyway, (laughs) on that very um, compliant note for you, Harry, let's see if that comes to pass. So on today's Middle East analysis, the focus is on Jordan, actually, and that's a country I know that is obviously important to you, Harry, because you were born there, um, amongst other things, a very important country in the region as far as you're concerned. We'll talk about the the uh, royal spat there um, and the implications of that. We'll then touch on the Palestinian elections, because obviously the the new news on that is a sort of indefinite postponement by uh, Mahmoud Abbas. So we'll we'll talk to you about that. More elections, Syria, May the 26th. So May, an, an interesting month there with the presidential elections. I've got a couple of questions to ask you on that, obviously. And then in, in conclusion, Harry, we can touch upon another subject very close to you is the Armenian genocide. I, I can't believe it's 106 years because I remember that you and I spoke about it in 2015, which would have marked obviously 100 years after that tragedy. Should we delve in then, Harry? And we, we, as I said just then, it's Jordan. You were born there. I know how important Jordan is to you, but I am trying to get my head around um the royal crisis, the rivalries, the economic impact, the potential foreign entities that have been accused of destabilizing the country. Do Jordanians trust their monarchy at the moment, Harry?
1: Yes, they do. And uh, before I go there, uh, James, let me just say you've put down there an agenda that is frightening because it's quite long. So Let's hope once more every month we profess good faith and we never stick uh, to it. So let's hope that this is not going to be a very long uh, Middle East analysis uh, for April. Uh, Do the Jordanians trust the monarchy? Yes, they do trust the monarchy. Am I fond of Jordan? I'm very fond of the kingdom. I was born there many decades ago and uh, I have worked with Jordanians, with the royal court, with uh, friends, both in the church and in think tanks, as well as in academia. So it is an important uh, country for me. And uh, when you're born in a country, I mean, yes, I grew up in France, and then uh, the rest is history, in a sense, checkered history, but still history. So uh, it is important, Jordan. And uh, The monarchy is, in my opinion, still trusted, but this royal spat, as I called it, where many people made many claims about what went wrong or what was the reason uh, behind uh, that turbulent moment, it was a worrying moment. And I have my own uh, views, which I'm sure you're going to wish me to share with you.
0: Well, there you go. There's you asking and answering questions again. But yeah, do share those. Explain to us exactly what's going on here.
1: Well, what actually happened is that suddenly out of the blue, the foreign minister of Jordan said in a press conference that people had been conspiring against the kingdom, that people had been arrested, people who were close to the royal court People who had who had a lot of influence in the country, they had been arrested. They were under investigation for uh, doing things which were inimical with the interests of the Kingdom of Jordan. And of course, key to that, which drew the attention of the world press or the media, is the fact that the name of Prince Hamza uh, came uh, out as one of those characters who had allegedly done things which were inimical or contrary to the interests of uh, the country as a whole and which had unsettled uh, the king and uh, the royal court. Now, when you tried, when you listen to that, and at the beginning, of course, a lot of the media and the journalists plunged in, a lot of armchair analysts plunged in, and everybody started imagining or reporting scenarios that were or were not correct, that were fictional, that were not entirely based on fact. So it was still new and people were trying to understand what is happening here in Jordan. When the Arab Spring broke out in 2010-2011 and we just recently observed the first 10 years of its uh, start, everybody used to say one of the reliable, quiet countries in that very turbulent and unquiet uh, region is Jordan. So what is it this about uh, coup d'etats and rumbles in the royal kingdom, etc., etc.? Some people said it was because there were external involvements. That other countries were trying to muddy the waters, were trying to unsettle the royal family and get rid of the uh, king or punish the king, etc., etc., for uh, his foreign policy directives. I personally do not believe that uh, that is uh, true. I think that's more of a trope or more of a knee jerk reaction than anything else. I mean, some people put a lot of time and a lot of weight on the fact that an Israeli businessman said that he would provide uh, Prince uh, Hamza with a plane for him and his family to leave Jordan and go out elsewhere. And they said, why would an Israeli do that? Therefore, Israel is involved in this. Others said, no, it has to do with Uh, Saudi Arabia because uh, the Saudi royals were upset when Jordan refused and rightly so, might I add, when uh, Jordan refused to join the then coalition uh, that went to war in Yemen and caused so much uh, devastation there, and that the Saudi royals want to teach Jordan a lesson. Others said, no, actually, it's the United Arab Emirates. Why? Because Jordan was very critical of the Abraham Accords and the way that President Trump brought the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain into the fold with Israel at the expense, might I add, of the Palestinian uh, situation, even though there were so many palliatives and it was explained in so many uh, spinning ways that uh, people thought, oh, really? However, the, the United Arab Emirates sheikhs, we were told, were upset with Jordan. So Israel was thrown into the fray. Uh, the Saudis were thrown into the fray. The Emirates were th- uh, thrown into the fray. And maybe there was some uh, uh, grumbling uh, discontent. Uh, from all those three countries about the attitude of Jordan and the monarchy and the government. But somehow, I do not really think that that is what happened. I think it was much more home unease. Let me explain why. To try and understand Jordan, James, you have to understand that for decades now, since the previous, the late King Hussein and before that and after that with King Abdullah today, for decades there have been accommodations in the country that have accumulated into what Jordanians call a social contract between the Hashemite regime and its East Bank support base. This is why uh, Jordanians of East Bank descent are among those who are today most critical of King Abdullah II. Why? They feel that, in a sense, he has violated the social contract that was established in the kingdom almost a century ago. They're angered by the corruption, the neoliberal policies of austerity, the privatization the, I don't know, the decreased uh, public sector jobs, all these things have happened in the last 10, uh, 15 years. And they've certainly happened during the uh, period of the revolutionary uprisings, those 10 years in the Arab world. And all this has happened and has resulted in dire economic circumstances for Jordan. Now, you might tell me fine. Why are you talking about East bankers, and why are you talking about economics, when I started asking you about the royal spat? Well, the answer to that, James, and I'm asking the questions and giving answers, by the way, the answer to that is that Prince Hamza bin Hussein, who is the son of the late King Hussein and Queen Noor, tapped into this void, into this anger, into this Economic morass and unsettled the East Bankers and the tribes in Jordan. And when I say East Bankers versus West Bankers, what I mean is that uh, East Bankers are people who are born in Jordan and who draw their roots from Jordanian roots, whereas West Bankers, to a large extent, are of Palestinian roots. And when I talk about the social contract between the Hashemite regime and the East Bankers, I'm talking principally and very simplistically about jobs in the public sector. And this is where it matters. Those East Bankers who have those jobs in the public sector felt that they were being ignored as the economic situation in the country worsened. Add to it the fact that the tribes in Jordan, and this is not only for Jordan but for many Arab countries in the region, the tribes are the backbone of the Hashemite support system. In Arabic, there is a very nice expression uh, which the Bedouins and the tribes use, they say, and the sense of honor, the pride of the Jordanian tribes were assaulted by this spat. Some of them from one clan in one tribe were arrested as a result of this royal spat, and that angered them as, as well. And therefore, all this came together to unsettle the East Bankers, to unsettle the tribes. As the economic situation worsened, Prince Hamza was constantly in touch with those East Bankers, with those tribes. He would go sit down, eat like them, talk like them, discuss their problems when necessary, criticize some of the challenges that jordan has been increasingly facing over the years for instance freedom of speech is not that famous clampdowns and detentions are on the rise covid has made the situation very very uh, bad there is corruption there is there are issues of hierarchy um, young generations these days are more aware of what is happening in their so- societies. We've seen this with the demonstrations in the streets of all countries. Algeria, Tunisia, Lebanon, Iraq, Jordan is part of that. In Arabic, they're called hiraks, movements. And the open space allows for these younger generations to be more aware of what is happening, somebody was talking about this and he said something which was really great. He said, you know, Harry, Jordan is not North Korea. That's true. Jordan is not insular. You join, say, the clubhouse chatter these days and you'll find out all these complaints, all this unease coming out. So put the economy, put the different uh, strata of society in Jordan, put a very charismatic young prince who comes uh, with a very sort of solid uh, dynasty behind him, it unsettled uh, the royal court. They jumped in a little bit too quickly. Uh, this is my analysis. They jumped in a little bit too quickly and they said, oh, we have to be careful. And that is where I think the situation has basically unsettled the whole system and has impacted everybody near and far. But go back to the root of the subject. And I'm happy to give you a couple of examples on that. Go to the root of the subject. And it is, as Bill Clinton used to say, it is the economy, stupid.
0: (laughs) Yeah, um, very interesting too, Harry. But you know, I I have to ask this question, whether you want to answer it or not is up to you. But From what you've said, looking at that sort of domestic destabilisation and, and, you know, Prince Hamza potentially meeting some of the the king's domestic detractors, the East Bank critics and so forth, what's in it for him? What's in it for Prince Hamza to behave this way?
1: It's a very interesting question. It's a very good question because I think that's part of the reason why the royal court was unsettled, why uh, the foreign minister said what he said in the... Uh, press conference uh, on that uh, day when all this was brewing. The question was, why is Prince Hamza going and meeting those tribes? Why is he going and eating with them, uh, breaking bread with them, discussing their problems, talking about uh, the economy and the serious problems uh, of the economy in 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 Jordan why are the east bankers feeling this yawning gap between them and the uh, hashemite dynasty as well as the west bankers what is it in for him now some people who have ill intent said oh because he's grooming himself you know he's not the crown prince so technically speaking after the king goes or abdicates or retires or leaves his throne, the crown prince would usually take his place. Uh, So uh, Prince Hamza is not the crown prince. Therefore, some people who were mischievous suggested that maybe he's trying to burnish his credentials enough so that when the time comes, he will be inevitably the one to take over as the king uh, as the future king rather than his younger half brother who is now actually the the crown prince that's one of the reasons the other people who were less mischievous said that the uh, prince hamza was really worried about the economy and therefore was worried about the kingdom uh, sticking together, working together. He was seeing the different uh, threads of society unraveling. He was worried, and therefore he was going and talking uh, to these uh, tribes. After all, he is his father's son, and his father was famous for his uh, Contacts with the tribes and with how to keep the country together, even in the most difficult circumstances. And I can remember many instances when the late King Hussein was also in deep uh, waters and he managed to survive. So some people would say, no, the man was trying to help he hold the kingdom together. Others would say, no, he was being pushed or pushing himself for a more personal gain in the future so whichever one of those is i don't know but for me the what matters is not what drove prince hamza to go and tap into this void but rather what it did uh, to the country and what needs to be done in order to avoid such unhelpful and uneasy Instances in a region that really is very volatile and anything can go wrong, and if things go wrong, then usually they go wrong in a very bad way.
0: That's fascinating, Harry, I have to say. You know, cast as a hero or a villain personal interests at hand or those of the country it's too hard to call in many ways and only he knows really what's motivating him to do this it's almost like prince harry to our monarchy you know if you're not the first in line
1: absolutely it's exactly like prince harry here in in a different context because the culture is different the realities of the kingdom are different from our own uh, united kingdom but Uh, In a sense, yes, it really, you have to second guess. I mean, today I was reading, only today I was reading a tabloid headline which said that Prince Harry had expressed regret at the impulsive way in which he'd given that interview with Oprah Winfrey. So in a sense, all this comes together and you wonder, was this a storm in a teacup or was there much more to it that simply doesn't meet the eye, or at least I can't see more to it. But because I'm very fond of the kingdom of the country, because I have friends and memories and experiences uh, with Jordan on many levels, that I was also following this quite closely and worried about the kingdom, because it takes very little. We saw that during the revolutionary uprisings, things could really go uh, bad things could really unravel quickly so i was hoping that this small relative uh, oasis of stability in the region would not suddenly uh, disappear and that the problems particularly the economic uh, problems that jordan has will be will be addressed seriously i mean I'll just give you two examples, uh, James. Uh, Jordan ha- is aware of its problems. It's not that they don't know about it. The king knows about it. The ministers know about it. Everybody knows about it. The question is, what do you do about it? One of those is, for instance, food. Uh, 53% of Jordanians uh, are vulnerable to food insecurity. There are other. It is. There are others who are totally food insecure. You you go to some places, uh, the percentage is is even higher. And this is not only because suddenly Jordan has become poorer in terms of uh, food security and food resources, it's also because uh, of the 10 years of tumultuous uprisings which have impacted the whole region. For instance, a lot of the trade with Jordan was done between Jordan and Syria, and more particularly between two towns uh, in Syria and in Jordan. In Jordan, it was Ramtha. In Syria, it was Dar'a, where the Syrian uprising initially started. And these are both frontier towns, and they have tribal connections. They have got their intermarried, etc. And Ramtha and Dar'a people used to trade together, and they used to be called the Bahara, the sailors who used to go into rest houses from Jordan into Syria in order not to go further into Syria itself because of the security situation, into rest places which are known in Arabic as Istirahat, and they would those baharas would go to the Istirahat, get goods, bring it back to Jordan, sell it, and there was an economic boom happening there. This is only one example I'm giving you, and because of the uh, troubles in Syria, because the Syria Syria is in a meltdown because of the violence, that has pretty much dried up, and it's one of the reasons why Jordan is feeling it in in its bellies as it were, when there is so much uh, food insecurity on an individual uh, level. Take another example. Take uh, the fact that Jordan, also the kingdom, is one of the world's most water-stressed countries. Jordanians are feeling, uh, are, uh, feeling worse and worse water shortages. How do you deal with it? The Saudis, as I said earlier, are upset. The Emirates are upset with Jordan for different reasons. So all the money that was shovelled into Jordan has stopped or has been has diminished, and therefore Jordanians are ending up with higher and higher levels of national debt, and that debt load, coupled with the fact that there are less remittances coming into the country from Jordanians working in rich oil uh, gulf countries the austere imf conditions for helping jordan uh, bail itself out of this uh, of this morass all this is happening in an unstable uh, neighborhood and is making jordan more fragile more vulnerable than it has been for for many many years and this is why a lot of people sat up and took notice of what's happening and said you know what we have to be careful because jordan is not somewhere in africa where you would say where what who who cares Location is important, and Jordan is smack in the middle of a very volatile, disturbed, and disturbing region. And if it provides a little bit of uh, stability, if that goes as well, it's going to be very, very difficult. So, burying one's head in the sand is not the answer. The answer is how does Jordan initiate? A national dialogue not only for its economic issues but also for this spat which saw the royals uh, sort of involved in a tug-of-war how do you initiate a national dialogue under the patronage of the king in order to discuss those serious problems that Jordan is facing uh, today these are some of the challenges that have to be met and have to be met wisely and with lucid minds. And also, it's a message for countries like the neighbors of Jordan, the oil-rich countries, as well as other countries like the United States, like the European Union, like the United Kingdom, which is such a close ally of Jordan. These countries should also realize that you cannot just turn your back on uh, jordan and say oh we've got other things we've got brexit we've got covid we've got this or that it's global if you don't nurture your friends your friends might not be there one day when you turn and look for them
0: wow well i have to say harry that was a long piece of analysis but i think worthy of our time primarily because In all the years we've been recording Middle East analysis, we haven't given dedicated time to Jordan. We've discussed the impact of various events on Jordan and Jordan's influence in those events with its near neighbours and slightly further afield. So thank you for that. That was fascinating, actually. And, and, you know, we look at young charismatic princes and, and how they're delving into these domestic politics and and things that clearly have a profound effect on um, the economic conditions as well. So thank you for that. But we are going to shift somewhat sideways to the Palestinian elections, Harry. And it's some 15 years, is it not, since there were last Palestinian elections. But now we hear in in recent uh, moments that they have been postponed by Mahmoud Abbas, and um, possibly because maybe he thought that Fatah wouldn't really stand much of a chance this has been described as a coup by hamas what's the state of play with regard to elections in palestine and do the people still want fatah or maybe in the west bank would we get a change of scenery
1: harry well it depends james what you mean by change of uh, of uh, scenery but when we were just talking about jordan of course in a sense jordan israel and Palestine. The three in very strange ways come together, uh, fit together in in an awkward jigsaw puzzle uh, quite well in my own head. So uh, moving from Jordan to Palestine is is quite uh, a smooth transition for me. And in it, I would say two things. Yes, you are right. The elections, the last elections took place in 2006, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, since then, there have been no elections. And finally, surprisingly, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority, recently said, "We're going to have fresh elections." And the democratic world, more than the non-democratic uh, regimes, breathed a sigh of relief and said, "Finally, we're going to re-legitimize the whole political structure, and we're going to refresh." perhaps even the possibility of new uh, efforts toward resolving the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And they said this in some ways because Trump was no longer at the White House and therefore his totally one-sided and often malevolent intents on uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict will not sway people too much as they did when he was there and uh, doing his bit. That's that's history. We've discussed that uh, in the past. So people were happy with it. And then what happened was quite interesting that suddenly we started hearing people saying, ah, but hold on. Elections for what? Well, there are three kinds of elections. The first elections are for legislative elections or for a Palestinian parliament. Now, that uh, parliament is the one that was elected in 2006 and never sat because uh, Hamas had a majority and the West, who were calling for an election, didn't want that parliament to be viable because hamas had a majority voice in it so really no parliament was had uh, done anything for all those years so the first election was the legislative parliamentary elections the second one this that was supposed to take place in may the second one were the presidential elections in other words Will uh, Mahmoud Abbas renew his mandate for another term or would somebody else take his place? That was supposed to be in August. Equally in all August was uh, the elections for the PNC, which is for the whole Palestinian structure worldwide in the diaspora and in Palestine itself. And what happened are two things. On the parliamentary aspect of things, suddenly. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas and his uh, ministers and allies suddenly realized that, you know what? Hamas might once more defeat us and we would be exactly in the same situation as we were in 2006. What would we do? Do another election uh, 15, 16 years later and then again uh, declare that the parliament is shut and no activity there? Or do we cancel the elections? Now, why did he call for elections in the first place if the possibility of Hamas having victory were there? The reason is. That when he called for elections, when Mahmoud Abbas called for elections and he was pressured by the EU and the Americans and others to show some uh, credentials on human rights and openness and good governance and what have you, when he did that, he didn't think that Hamas could once more uh, garner a majority of seats in the Palestinian Legislative Assembly. The reason that the story moved on and facts changed is because Fatah disintegrated or fragmented into three parts. It was no longer Hamas versus Fatah. It was Hamas, one monolithic unity versus three fragmented parts of uh, Fatah. One was Mahmoud Abbas and his allies One was Nasr Qidwa and uh, his party, and the third was Dahlan's party. Those three were going to run for parliament, and those three do not see eye to eye. So at the end, you have one versus three, and it's very easy to see why you might not get the numbers you sought or you thought you would get initially. And therefore, unease crept into the Palestinian Authority in the sense of, uh oh, what do we do now? But it's very difficult for uh, Mahmoud Abbas to say, you know what, I feel that I'm going to be defeated in the elections, and therefore I'm going to cancel those elections. Well, authoritarianism is very much part and parcel of most of the rulers of the Arab world. So it's not beyond him, just as it's not beyond of so many of the other rulers and presidents and monarchs to say, you know, after me the deluge. But he couldn't say that because it would show that at the end of the day, he's not asking for free and fair elections. He's asking for elections that would basically revalidate his position and his uh, options of staying or not staying as president in uh, Palestine. Therefore, they had to find a pretext, a cosmetic reason why those elections will have to be postponed. They're cosmetic, but not entirely cosmetic. And let me explain. They said, okay, elections will take place in Gaza. Elections will take place across the whole of the West Bank. And elections should take place in Jerusalem, in East Jerusalem, which is Arab Jerusalem, which recently had witnessed so many clashes between Muslims praying for Ramadan at the entrance to Damascus Gate, one of the gates leading to the old city of Jerusalem, and the Israeli forces. And those clashes were viewed by many observers and pundits and journalists as a way of Arab-Palestinians saying East Jerusalem is Arab, is ours. So West Bank is fine. Elections will take place there. Gaza elections will take place. But in Jerusalem, Israel considers the Arab East side of Jerusalem alongside the Jewish West side of Jerusalem as the one united capital of Israel. And Israel had not told the Palestinians that it would allow Palestinians living in Jerusalem, Jerusalemite residents of Palestinian origin, that it would allow them to vote for the elections. So the Palestinian Authority thought, okay, if this is the case, and if Israel hasn't said yes or no yet, that is why I qualified my statement earlier, let us then cancel those elections and more like postpone them, hopefully at least, Uh, in order to make sure that Jerusalem voters can also vote, because Jerusalem is one of the central core issues for Palestinians anywhere in the world. Now, there are about 350,000 voters. 150,000 of those are expected to uh, vote in Jerusalem. But only the accords, the agreements between Israel and Palestinians Allow only for 6,000. What about the others? If you do not allow Jerusalemite Palestinians to vote, it's not only a question of you might tweak the percentages of this or that party getting more seats in parliament. That is one consequence, but it's not the main consequence. The main consequence is if they don't vote, if they're not allowed to vote, then you are basically saying that Jerusalem has nothing to do with Palestine. And that is anathema to any Palestinian or anybody who supports the Palestinian cause. Therefore, instead of saying, oh, oh, Hamas might defeat us, and we might lose, and it would be a repeat performance of 2006. We said, or we heard uh, Mahmoud Abbas bringing all the Palestinian factions to Ramallah yesterday and uh, having a very late night uh, powwow, uh, the result of which was all the elections are postponed until further notice. Now, I think it's sad that we are where we are because Palestinians in my opinion have been very very eager to have those elections it could have been possible to find other ways of bypassing israeli and israeli no on palestinians in jerusalem voting uh, other ways could have been devised and we have missed an opportunity to show the world that we actually believe in democracy, believe in representation, and believe in a change of generations and in a change of uh, politicians. But we are where we are, and who am I to say whether they're right or wrong? The only thing I would add is that, and I always say this to people who are too quick to criticize Palestinian governance, is that they are living no matter which word you use, they are living under occupation. Human Rights Watch recently came up with a report, a huge 200-plus page report, in which it said apartheid is being exercised by Israel against the Palestinians. Carnegie Endowment came up with a report calling it Breaking the Israeli-Palestinian Status Quo, in which it showed in its report how the Politics of 20 years since Oslo has not managed to change anything on the ground, and there should be a fresh, new, rights-based discourse on the Palestinian conflict. When you look at all these things and you realize that Palestinians are under occupation You might give them a little bit of leeway because unlike other countries in the neighborhood where the rulers are basically dictators, these people are also day in, day out under occupation. So whilst I'm critical of the decision personally as an individual, I also understand that there are sometimes circumstances that are beyond control which call for cosmetic and rather difficult choices to be made.
0: I'd certainly agree with that. Um, Harry, I have several follow-up questions, but I feel that we probably don't have time for them on this particular podcast. So we'll leave it there, Harry. But I do want to have a quick word on Syria, because, of course, how many times have you and I spoken about Bashar al-Assad, the president? It's gone very quiet because, obviously, international players have settled in with their vested interests. Yet there is this prospect of presidential elections on the 26th of May. And I'm just going to ask you the one question, a straightforward one. What is the likelihood
1: of a new president in Syria?
0: Don't make me laugh.
1: That question can be answered in three seconds. And I just did that. Well, I feel I... I know the answer to it. Yeah. Yeah. When I chortled rather than just smiled or laughed,
0: Okay good that's the end of that
1: segment oh, go on <laughs> you are absolutely right James there will be presidential elections to choose or to vote for a president there are a number of candidates who have actually applied to uh, to run For president, but of course we know that at the end of the day, with an overwhelmingly impressive percentage point, Bashar al-Assad is going to be re-elected as president of Syria for another term. Now we have. So, Harry,
0: why why would anyone be remotely interested in presidential elections if it's a shoo-in then?
1: Because of many many things. One, I mean, we are now you have to look at the whole 10 years of uh, unrest and uncertainty in Syria as well as in the whole region. And one thing we have to say is that Syria today is clearer in terms of who controls what and who does what in the country. If you have a presidential election and Bashar al-Assad wins with uh, a modest 80% or an impressive 90%, the first thing it does is it re-legitimizes the regime in the eyes of the Syrians themselves and in the eyes of the international uh, community and particularly of the Arabs across the world, the Arab member states of the Arab League. Why do I say that? I say that because re-legitimization at this juncture is important for Syria. First, there are moves afoot for getting Syria back into the Arab League, for giving it back its chair within the Arab League. Russia has been pushing hard. For this. The foreign minister of Russia has been going and meeting different people trying to convince different countries of the Arab world to support readmitting uh, Syria into the Arab League. One outcome of re-legitimization would be to say, well, listen, 85, 89 percent, whatever it is, Uh, Have voted for the man. The fog of war is a bit clearer now in the country. We have to get Syria back in. Now, this is one thing. The other thing, and this is always gurgling at the back uh, of people's, of politicians' thoughts, is reconstruction. You're going to need hundreds of billions of dollars to reconstruct the whole. Uh, country again, which in parts has been totally devastated. So the money that's going to be made by building companies, societies, countries, who's going to be the donor, who's going to lend the money, who's going to get what out of it, how does it impact Russia and Iran, the two chief key players in uh, Syria who pretty much run the country, although the figurehead is Bashar al-Assad and the Syrian regime, the Baath regime. the The question of reconstruction also is very much there, and this re-legitimization would also, they hope, Russia hopes, would actually encourage some people from Europe, from the EU from the Americans, who till now have said no, by the way, uh, no reconstruction money until Assad is out, or at least until there is a rewriting of the Constitution and of the uh, methods of governance. So all this is part and parcel of the soap that is being recorded In Syria which is the equivalent of EastEnders and uh, Coronation Street put together and this basically is where we are with Syria but interestingly enough is that if you want to pick weak points from this there are so many you could give but not least of those is you're going to ask me Harry who's going to vote and I'm going to answer by saying How representative is this election that would re-legitimize the regime? The Kurdish areas and the SDF are not going to be allowed to vote. The Syrian regime is gradually increasing its stranglehold on those uh, Kurdish areas in Syria. The Idlib governorate, which is in the hand of the rebels, is not going to vote either. So, namely, we're talking about large chunks of the northeast and the northwest of Syria. Add to that the millions of Syrian refugees which are abroad, the three and a half million in Turkey, the almost one million in Lebanon, the 60,0, 700,000 in Jordan. These people, most of them, are not going to... Uh, vote. And even if they're asked to go to the embassies in their respective uh, refuge countries to register and vote, they'd be afraid to do that, because once a Syrian enters the embassy, he or she becomes hostage to the people in the embassy, and they would be afraid to do that. Otherwise, they wouldn't be refugees. They would be back in their own country today. So representation is in my opinion a little bit comical, and this is why I use the word soap because it is a political uh, soap that is being produced, which seemingly the world would be told re legitimizes the regime, gets Syria back into the Arab League, gives uh, Assad a fresh political breath, which in turn strengthens Russia much more than Iran, by the way, and which hopefully would yield toward reconstruction, which at the end of the day would also suit Iranians and Russians a lot, not least because of the backhanders. So all this put together tells you why this happens. On top of this, put on top of this, the ego that dictators have, where they think that they are indispensable and nobody else can do their job no matter the litany of crimes they commit in the process and hence endeth my answer
0: and you know i wasn't actually going to say who is going to vote i was going to say whose votes will be counted but perhaps they're one and the same thing if you read between the lines
1: In yes
0: now harry We are fast approaching the hour mark, which means I think it's time for us to have a concluding thought. I know obviously close to you as an Armenian is the Armenian genocide. And as I said, at the start of the show, I was very happy to see you for the first time in 2021, even though that the um, occasion was to mark the 106th anniversary of that awful genocide. You gave a talk, very interesting one at that. I suppose, My question on this is, 106 years later, and it is one of those sort of forgotten genocides, some countries don't even categorise it as one. What do you think the importance of remembrance is, and and, and can that heal wounds, or is it important that this is officially worldwide recognised as a
1: genocide? Thank you, James. Yes, it was an interesting event that we had, and thank you for coming physically and participating in it and lending your solidarity and support for it. First and foremost, with recognition, the first party and the most important party that needs to recognize the Armenian genocide that was committed under cover of World War I is Turkey itself. Now, the Turkey then, Ottoman Turkey, and the Turkey today are not the same Turkey. It's a different regime that has taken over. But the crimes against humanity, the genocide, the killings, the detentions, the deportations, all that happened in Turkey. And therefore, for me, the first country that should hold its hand up and say, look, this happened. I'm sorry for it, let's move on. And it is not such a huge ask if we look at how Germany has held its hand up and has said, yes, we are guilty for the Jewish Holocaust. So in a sense, what I'm asking is not too different from what the Germans accepted in terms of responsibility for the Holocaust I'm asking the same thing from Turkey for uh, the Armenians and as a matter of fact for other communities that also were killed during this rampaging homicidal period namely the Assyrians and the Pontic Greeks. Now that is for me the key purpose anybody who tells me that is unimportant well I think that they've got it wrong bluntly but Given that Turkey is still, and its political leadership is in denial, and it's a denial based either on ignorance, on a misrepresentation or a misconstruction of facts, or on a supercilious egomania that prevents somebody from accepting that it is at all possible that a Turk committed this crime, so in order to help Chivi turkey along and on the road to recognition it is important that other countries where the rule of law where democracy matters that they also act Because as more and more countries recognize a genocide, and this applies to the Armenian genocide as it does to many others, we're talking now about genocides with the Uyghurs in northwest China. We're talking about the Muslim Rohingya people in Myanmar, Burma. We're talking about all the other uh, genocides that happened before that. We are using the G word increasingly more these days. Now, the Armenian genocide was the second genocide of the 20th century, although a lot of people claim it's the first one. So it's important for those countries that uphold the rule of law to say, hold on, we will actually acknowledge it. And what is the importance of acknowledgement? The importance of acknowledgement is not that it's going to bring the well over a million Armenians who died during the genocide. They're not suddenly going to come out of their graves and say, hey, what, we are alive again. Of course not. The loss is there. It's been suffered. It's been done. The reason why it's important is because it addresses a pain, a trauma, a stress, what I have called in my writings recently this year as the PTSD factor, the post-traumatic stress disorder factor that most Armenians worldwide in the diaspora feel it, bear it, carry it, which is, this happened to my ancestors, to my grandparents, to my great-grandparents, to my parents. How can I rest without saying that the culprit Not necessarily has to pay for it, but at least has to acknowledge it. You and I know that when we look today, 2021, 2020, in our modern society, when there is a crime that takes place, when there are cases of pedophilia, cases of murder, whatever, the families come out and say, we need closure, we need them to acknowledge their crime so that we are unburdened and we can move on this is being done on the level of one family one member of a family one tribe one clan imagine how armenians feel when it is done on a collective uh, basis when one day there were millions of armenians in anatolian turkey the next day there over a million of them had disappeared somebody has to say, okay, this happened, let's get together and let's move on. Commissions of historians have come together and they've said it did happen. The International Association for Genocide Scholars, the foremost leading authority on genocide issues, has said time and again that the Armenians suffered a genocide defined by the UN Convention of 1948. Lawyers have said the same thing. Jeffrey Robertson, a QC barrister in the UK, has written an opinion and a book on it, as have other less important lawyers, not least yours truly. So all these people have contributed to it and we need to move toward closure because closure would help the process of reconciliation and reconciliation would then help move with the healing of those wounds. Because I do not like to think of Armenians, and I'm talking of my tribe now, I do not like to think of Armenians caught up in a time warp that is gloomy, that is homicidal, that is genocidal. I want Armenians to move forward, and today they have proven that they are able to do that. So why don't we get that closure? And in order to get that closure, somebody died. So the person who killed him or her should say, I did it, so that we could then deal with it and move on. That to me basically is it. And what President Biden did, and the whole hoo-ha about an American president saying it, just as with so many other Uh, countries saying it, or not recognizing the genocide like the United Kingdom, like Israel, like Australia also. Uh, The hoo-ha that President Biden's statement got was to me very, very simple. He spoke truth to power. And for that, I commend him because his words aren't going to change the course of history, but he showed that he is strong enough, a leader, to speak truth to power.
0: Harry, I want to ask you one thing, and and with the greatest of respect to the memory of those huge numbers that were killed. Explain to me, or, or rather clarify for me, whether potentially you talk about closure, and I think that's right and just. And I think that would mean an awful lot to the collective psyche of Armenians around the world. But is it potentially fact, the fact that the culprit does not want to acknowledge it in that way because they're worried about the reparation side of things?
1: It's a very good question, uh, James. and it's a, it's, a, it's a very good question, and it's a very astute question, if I might say so. There are fears. I mean, one of the reasons I think that Turkey refuses to recognize the genocide is because the Turkish mindset in a lot of people, particularly in its political establishment in the deep state, refuses to accept that it is at all possible that the sultans and pashas of the time could actually commit such barbaric crimes against another People who actually were living in the same country, neighbors in the same uh, towns, uh, citizens of the same country. That's one thing I'm uh, convinced of it. There is, I always compare the Turkish and German uh, characteristics, and I see the difference. The German bends backward to accommodate the other. The Turk would sort of say no bristle at the idea of anybody saying to uh, President Erdogan that your predecessors committed genocide. It's unacceptable. But you are absolutely right that there is another consideration, which is what if the president of uh, Turkey or the parliament in Turkey were to, as Garo Pailan, a Kurdish a uh, member of the Turkish parliament said that the parliament should actually pass a bill recognizing the genocide. And he was attacked right, left and center by other more nationalistic members of parliament in Turkey. What if they stand up and they pass a bill, a motion, which says, we recognize that we did this during the period 1915 to 1923. Their fear probably is that under international law, it would actually open up the sluice gates for restoration, payment of money, territorial uh, swaps, etc., etc., and that probably freaks them out as much as the injury to the person of saying that a Turk could have committed those atrocities uh, during World War I. So you're absolutely right that those two are caught up in some sort of a an unholy alliance when it comes to reasons why uh, Turkey hasn't yet recognized the uh, genocide. It does not exculpate. It does not uh, apply to other countries like the United Kingdom, like Israel, which suffered itself the Holocaust, like Australia. It doesn't actually give them any pretense the way it does for Turkey. So that is true. However, for me, the truth should not be peripheral and subject to these considerations. And I can tell you that there are many, many Armenians who are willing to accept a recognition as a process, as the start of a process of closure, and they're not going to go and say, oh, we want restoration, or we want uh, the old uh, territories, the old homelands, what is known as Eastern Armenia. We don't want it. We want it back. They, they're not going to do that because that's impractical. But you're absolutely right. Those two uh, factors are pretty much the considerations I can... Think of when I talk about the Armenian Genocide. And the fact that it's been, as you yourself kindly mentioned, 106 years since the symbolic date of 24th April 1915, that makes some people say, wow, there's so much dust that's accumulated on that page of history. Can't you just flaming close that page and move on to uh, 2021? Yes, but how many people have been interviewed today who say, you know, our daughter, our son, our father, uh, our relative, our friend was killed two years ago and we can't uh, get over it yet. It needs a process of closure and that I think is what is not happening yet.
0: Well, Harry, we made it. We recorded an April podcast, which will go out in April. Fortunately, just we by did. The...
1: And uh, please, uh, listeners, be patient with us. You don't need to listen to the whole thing in one go. Pick and choose what you uh, what you like. And I would like to say here that. Uh, Armenia and the Armenian genocide are not part of the Middle East so a special word of thanks to you James not only for attending the commemorative event a few days ago but also for introducing this topic and for allowing me to express myself for a few minutes on air with you about a subject that has that has impacted me personally and my family as well but thankfully we are people who are not caught in a time warp we recognize the sacrifices we want closure but above all we believe that we armenians like any other people across the world we are a living people and therefore we must move on
0: harry i was i was happy to do so and i think the truth is and this this goes for quite a lot of the realities across the middle east and north africa you know We're friends, and so I'm interested in your joys, your sufferings, and everything in between. And I think it could be said that many, many people across these regions that we talk about so often that are so passionate about, the people themselves, make their friendship groups their relationships they offer their wonderful hospitality even if they have comparatively little and they get to know one another and they get to know their sufferings and joys and everything in between so i think it's somewhat representative that we do so in some small way ourselves so it was my pleasure and i appreciate
1: you and you know what would be my joy what is the joy i'm looking forward to uh, james do tell The day after the 17th of May, if that is the correct day, because there have been so many dates that have come and gone, for me to go into a pub, sit down and have a nice pint of draft Guinness.
0: And you know what? There might even be uh, some fish and chips going alongside.
1: (laughs) Now you're talking. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Harry. On that note, we will be with you again next month. Thank you, listeners.